0: Welcome once again to the perimeter church podcast we're all familiar with advent wreaths and the four candles that are lit over the four weeks of the season in the center is the christ candle finally lit on christmas eve do you remember what each of the four candles represents teaching team members randy pope jeff norris and caleb click bring us this christmas eve perspective on love joy hope and peace For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you, Graham, and welcome all, and particularly our kids. I want you to know that Christmas Eve has a reputation around here of being a time for our kids' primary audience. You are the audience, and there's no exception. Though we're not doing the little reward uh, that we typically do this year, I hope there will be great benefit, particularly to you kids. We're speaking with you as the first audience. In his book, Hidden Christmas, the author, Tim Keller, says to understand Christmas is to understand Christianity. And you know, lights help us understand Christianity. It really does. I don't know what it is about lights, but we would agree we're just enamored by them. I know my uh, youngest son and his family uh, just came unexpectedly to our house one evening, early evening, and said, hey, we're, we're going to go ride around and look at, uh, at Christmas lights with the kids. Do you want to come? And so we jumped in the car, and Carol was in the back seat and was... Uh, there as we stopped at one spot where these beautiful lights were all over the place and and a little two-year-old, two-year-old, wanted the window down. And as soon as that window came down, he started flying out that window. He was gonna get out there to those lights. And he was just awed, as were the other grandkids and all of us, there's something about lights. And let me say, it's the lights that tell us a lot about Christmas. Keller goes on to say lights are not just decorative, they're symbolic. Kids, I want you to remember these two things. They can serve as great reminders all through life. The first is simply this. Christmas lights remind us that the world is a dark place. The first verse that Graham read in chapter 8 in Isaiah, it reads like this in verse 22 Then they will look on the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Did you know what darkness represents? It represents two things it represents evil, such as suffering and injustice and violence, but also ignorance, suggesting there's no cure for the problems that we have. This was certainly true during this time. This is being written 700 years before Jesus. And the, the people of Israel were in great distress. There was a, a war about to happen, and those that were in leadership, Ahaz was the, uh, was the king, and he knew the southern kingdom was in trouble because to the north, there was going to be the northern kingdom, and there was going to be a country called Syria, and they were joining forces, and they were going to come in on them, and they knew it. It was at that time that God sent his messengers and said to the king, said, No, don't worry. I want you to trust in me. I will deliver you. But he didn't do that. Instead, he looked to his own way. And when he did, he hired a country, Assyria, who not only did take out the enemies to the north, but then turned on them and took them out themselves. This was the period of the greatest darkness of all of Israel. You know, the darkness is prevalent everywhere. In just a minute, you're going to see hear Caleb come up and describe a little bit of what the darkness is today, but you know what I'm talking about. We experience it personally. We see it in our country. We see it in the world today. Darkness everywhere, but there's hope. And that takes us to the second and final thought, kids. I want you to remember this. Christmas lights remind us, that there is hope because of the promised light. Isaiah's prophecy would go on and explain about this. It says it this way, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Nephtali, with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The impact of light. In just a few more minutes, you're going to hear Jeff as he'll talk a little bit about the impact that light has in a darkened place. But it says in our text, the light will shine on them. You know what that's telling us? It's telling us the answer to where does the light come from? Even as the light gets brighter here in this place, we sense a difference, do we not? Where does it come from? Where does it come from? Well, the answer is it comes from outside. Not from themselves, but from outside. It says as to where it's going to take place, on whom does it shine? It says those on whom it will shine would be those who would accept the reality that we are a dark people who have to have light and the light has to come from somewhere else. And when that happens, that's when we experience the light. And then the question of all questions, what is this light? Kids, I want you to hear this. This light is Jesus. He is the light. He calls himself the light. But in our text, these two places, it says, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Do you know that's where the Assyrians came in? That was the point of greatest darkness. And then contrasted with that is this place by the sea, the land of Galilee. Do you know that's where Jesus did his teaching? That's where he lived his ministry. And it's just saying, look, here it is. This Jesus will come in and he will be the light. If there was any question about that in terms of the Bible itself, it is dispelled in Matthew chapter 4 because there the author says and even quotes this text and identifies the light as Jesus himself. Let me close with this. 700 years. Think about that. 700 years before Jesus was to ever come doesn't prove that Jesus is the Christ, but it sure raises the odds. In the previous series that we taught here, I shared that we're all gamblers, every one of us. If you're an atheist that's here, you're a gambler. You're betting, you're betting that there's no God. It's a big bet, but no bigger than what Christians are betting. You know what Christians are betting? Those of us here that are Christians, we're betting that Jesus Is God it's a bet and we're basing our life on that bet and those that are maturing far in the faith they're betting in a big way that Jesus is trustworthy he can be trusted with anything if Jesus is the light and that tells us that right now you and I can experience light meaning knowledge of God and actually a whole new way of living. And so kids, my request of you is simply this. When you see those lights of Christmas, when you see them tonight as you go home, when you see them tomorrow, wherever you see those lights, you remember these two things. The world is a dark place and Jesus is the light. And when you're sensing that gloom, And that sense that what's wrong, what am I missing? Why do I not experience more? You remember this, it's the light and the light is Jesus.
2: That text that Randy just referenced and that we just read as a congregation, Isaiah says this hope has a very specific content. He says the light that is dawned, it's a light that brings peace to a land that is known only war. You know, as we look around this room and we look at our lives, there is nobody here who has ever known the peace that Isaiah talks about. But we've known war. We live in a world where war is everywhere that we look. It is in our homes, it is in our families, it is in our schools, it's in our jobs. It's a war that we see all around us, and it doesn't matter how young we are or how old we are. We're all experiencing the same thing. We see husbands turn on their wives, and wives turn on their husbands. We see children at conflict with their parents. We see friends who turn out to be enemies. We see nations rise up against nations. And everywhere we look, there is that war. Even on days like today, when we're gathering together with our families and we're preparing to sit around a tree and pass around presents and talk about peace and love and joy and harmony and how much we love being together as a family, the truth is, is all that peace and joy we talk about, it's pretty fragile, isn't it? Because all it takes... Is someone giving or receiving the wrong present, or somebody making the mistake of talking to the wrong uncle about the wrong politician, and suddenly everything falls apart, doesn't it? We live in a world that feels the bitter sting of Adam and Eve's sin in every corner and in every relationship, and no one knows that more acutely than Israel. They've known slavery, they've known wars within and wars without. They've seen their families ripped apart. They've seen foreign nations invade their soil. They have seen pain and suffering and sorrow and death. And while they've had these brief little moments, these little glimpses of peace, they've never known the thing itself. And what Isaiah has just said to the people of Israel is this world of war that you've been living in, it's about to get a lot worse. Because you haven't just been at war with each other, You've been at war with the God who made you. And you have bowed again and again and again to idols. And because you've done that, there is a foreign nation that is going to rise up. And the boots of their soldiers are going to walk into your land, bringing death and destruction with them. And there is nothing you can do to stop it. And so you would think, you'd think that what Isaiah would break out into, seeing all of this, seeing what has gone before and seeing what lies ahead, you would think that Isaiah would break out into a cry of woe, into a lament, that you could break into tears, that he would say, God, what are you doing? What is happening? What hope is there for your people? But that's not what Isaiah does. He says, no, these people who are in despair, they're going to experience joy because Isaiah has seen he has seen what only God's grace can provide. That the very God who is sending this nation to rebuke them, he is a God who has also promised to bring to them a peace that so overwhelms every broken thing in this dark world that every little bit of despair will be replaced with joy. He says in verse 4 that here is the peace which God provides, the yoke of your burden, the staff for your shoulder. The rod of your oppressor, God is going to break, as on the day of Midian. He's saying every force of evil, physical, spiritual, whatever it may be, God is going to completely and utterly shatter it. And then he says, The boot of tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned. It will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now you may not be somebody that's poetically minded and you may hear those words and think that sounds nice and it sounds flowery but what actual practical purpose do those words serve? It's this. Isaiah is saying the fire of God's grace is going to burn so brightly and with such heat it is going to consume not just the weapons of war It's going to consume even the clothes of war, the boots, the socks, the shirts, everything the blood has even touched. And it will so consume it that not only will the weapons be gone, but even the memory of the trauma that they brought will be gone as well. He says this will be a peace that never ends. This will be a peace that covers every square inch of God's green earth. And it's a peace that comes, not because of anything that you or I do, Not because of our goodness, not because of our repentance, but simply because the zeal of the Lord of hosts wants to do it. And it comes through a child. He says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And Isaiah, in his mind's eye, he has seen this child unlike any that has come before It's going to be a child of the line of David, this line of Israel's kings, a line that God had promised he would send his Messiah through. But this is going to be a king greater than David. This is going to be a king whose reign doesn't end. This is going to be a king whose power will never be thwarted. And the reason his reign won't end and the reason his power won't be thwarted is this won't just be a human king. This king is God himself. His name is wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah is saying, this king, he is the fire of God's grace that will consume not just the weapons of war, but even the memory of war. He is the one who is going to bring a peace so pervasive to this world that you will not even know war of any kind anymore. There will be no more threat, only joy, because peace has finally come. And here's the good news of the gospel. The reason we're here this morning, or this evening, the reason we're gathered in this room, the reason we're singing joy to the world, the reason we are crying out, happiness because a Savior has come is because the child that Isaiah saw, the child God promised, that's the child that we have seen in Jesus Christ. He is the one born of a virgin who lay in a manger, who was worshiped by wise men and shepherds, whose name was Jesus because as the angel said he would save his people from their sins. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And in the face of that kind of king, there's only one response. It's to bow. It's to join our voices with the prayers of the saints and say, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because you are the one you are the fire that will consume the weapons of war. You are the one who will take every sad thing and make it untrue. You are the one who will repair every relationship, who will end all hostility, who will take this whole world that has turned on itself because of its sin and will bring it all together in perfect peace under the reign of a perfect king. And if there's one thing that I want you to hear before you leave here today, it's this. When you see a crown... When you see a king, even a small, imperfect, and mortal one, you are seeing a foreshadowing of a greater king to come. And it is a king who is going to bring with him not a reign of tyranny, not a reign of fear, not a reign of despair, but a reign that will bring perfect, complete, overwhelming, earth-shattering peace. And that king... He is the one who beckons to you in Jesus. He is the one who has come, and he is the one who is coming again. And when he comes, we will taste his peace in full. And pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning, this evening, because Lord, you have given us in your Son one who is indeed our peace. You've given us one who has made peace not just between men but also between us and you who was so willing to pursue us that he was willing not just to come into this world but even to die in it. Holy Spirit, we pray, take our hearts, take our eyes, take our ears, take everything that we have and and enable us to see and behold and delight in that King alone. To bow our knee before the only one who can bring us peace. We pray this in his name. Amen.
3: We're in the New Testament now. You heard Randy say earlier that That passage that he and Caleb were speaking and teaching from a moment ago was 700 years before Christ. Fast forward 700 years and it's time for Jesus to come, for him to be born. But those words that you just heard from Luke 1 were not about baby Jesus. They were actually about baby John, John the Baptist, the one who would precede Jesus about six months. And you say, well, why are you talking to us about John? Why are we reading the words of his father, Zechariah, as he is saying this will be the prophet of the Most High? There's the key right there. In order to understand kind of the whole picture of how this fits together, of the, of the birth of Jesus, we have to understand the importance of John the Baptist. You see, in those 700 years between the prophecy of Isaiah, of what would, what would come, this This child that would be born to us. The the last 400 years of those 700 years, God's people heard nothing from God. It was God's practice to speak to his people through prophets. It's his mouthpiece. They would speak truth. Guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on and so forth. These men would speak truth to God's people. Call them to repentance. And even most of the time when we think of prophecy, we think of tell what's to come. But for 400 years, silence. Until this John guy shows up on the scene. And he is called the prophet of the Most High. The one, here's the one purpose of John's life. His purpose was to point to Jesus. To be a herald, if you will. You may or may not know what that is, but in ancient times, all the way up through the Middle Ages, a herald was a prominent position for those in the royal court of a king. If a king is traveling through a foreign land, then the herald's job is to go before the king, to go into the city center, the village center, the town center, wherever it may be where they can gather the most people. And they would commonly take this, this musical instrument, some horn of some kind, maybe similar to a trumpet like we have today. And they would blow this instrument so that all would hear within earshot and then they would say something along the lines of make way prepare ye the way for the king is coming and their message was prepare your city prepare your village prepare your home for this king is coming but John's message was a little different as a herald his was prepare your heart John was a weird dude it wasn't long into John's life before he made his home in the wilderness. He wandered around in the desert. And he had a crazy weird diet that the Bible tells us consisted of locusts and honey. Kids, can you imagine? You leave here, guys like me finally stop talking. Say, okay, we're going to go eat dinner. What do we have for dinner? Well, your Christmas dinner is locusts and honey. And you go, what's a locust? Ask your parents. They'll tell you. And you'll say, uh, oh, It's nasty. He had hair everywhere. He never cut his hair, his beard, anything like this. And he was a strange guy. But because of his strangeness, there was curiosity. People began to gather around him, not just because he was strange according to the world, but because of his message. And people began to be his disciples. And he was quick to tell them this. He was quick to say, it's not about me. My life, the purpose of my life is to be a forerunner to point to another. So that others would see that this salvation that I speak of, you don't get it through me. I'm a a broken man just like the rest of mankind, but there's one coming who's not broken. There's one coming just behind me. Be ready for him. Prepare your hearts. He's the greatest. He's the one, as John would later say, whose sandals I'm not even fit to tie. It's about him. And my role in this life, if John were with us today, would be to say to proclaim his salvation, the forgiveness of sins. And then he says this, his father said this in these words as he was speaking this prophecy over John. He said, and this will come by the mercy of God. It won't come because we're a deserving people. It won't come, the salvation won't come because we've somehow gotten ourselves together religiously and we've become very good moral people. Uh, that gets us nowhere in the economy of God because our sin-stained hearts are still sinful. Sinful. There's only one hope. There's only one peace. There's only one that unites us in love to God, and that's Jesus. Did you also notice that part of this salvation that John was going to proclaim, leading and preparing the way for Jesus, would be one, as Randy spoke to earlier about, in the language of the text, that light would come, and it would come to those who were sitting in darkness. And listen to this. And in the shadow of death, because the wages of sin is death, and we can't rescue ourselves from it, but there is one who can. You think about this light and darkness thing. It's the theme all the way throughout the coming of Jesus. Think about light. Kids, have you ever gone to a door in your house, let's say it's a dark closet. You know that when you open this door, it's going to be really dark and so you make sure to turn on a light in the room that the closet's in or maybe the hallway that the closet's in and isn't it true that every time you open that door the darkness just floods out and overtakes the light happens every time right no every single time from eternity past to eternity future light always wins and Jesus stood in this world that he came to, and he proclaimed, I am the light of the world. He came to destroy the works of the devil, the works of darkness. But you've got to ask yourself a question. Why would God do this? Why would he send his son to an undeserving people? Why would he send the light of the world into complete darkness? We weren't asking for it. If we're honest, because we've only known darkness, we love darkness. It's where we're comfortable. The only answer to that is, I'm going to show you in the candles. In previous weeks, we've lit candles that represent the various aspects of the Advent season. A few weeks ago, we lit this candle to signify the hope that Jesus brings. And then we, the next week, we lit the one on, on uh, peace. Third week, it was joy. And the only answer to why God would do this Is love. It's inexplicable, really, why God would cast his love upon a people that have done nothing but spit in his face by our sin. And he would say, Those people who really don't care for me or like me or want me, I want them. And I'm going to pour out my love on them through the person of my son, Jesus. It's overwhelming. I said we love the darkness, but what happens is is God through his grace and his mercy, he begins to open our eyes and we begin to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And we're wowed and we're amazed and we worship him because we see how much better he is than the darkness. Kids, here's your leaving piece. Every time you see an instrument, a musical instrument, every time you hear a musical instrument, a trumpet, a horn, whatever it may be, let that serve as a reminder for you of the love of God. And ask this question. Think herald and ask yourself this question. How is my life pointing to Jesus, just like John's? How am I heralding the King? Are people able to look at me and see Jesus, not because I'm great, but because he's great in me and his beauty is contagious? I want to transition us, lead us into a time of response. When we hear and see the greatness of the love of God for us in Jesus, there's something that happens and stirs within us, we begin to surrender to this Jesus. And we begin to want to give to him in every way, all of our lives. So it's only appropriate that at this time we would prepare our hearts to give to him, to respond and give our tithes and our offerings to King Jesus. If you're with us and you're, you're not sure where you are on this whole God thing, and you're, you're, not, you're investigating Christianity and you say, I'm just not really sure where I sit with all this, I'm not sure I believe what you're saying... And we would say, listen, don't feel any obligation to give. But for those of you who follow Jesus, this would be a time for you to respond and worship to him and give to him as a response to his love for you. And as, let me pray and ask God to bless us in that, to bless the giving of his tithes and offerings. And I, want, I also want to pray uh, for uh, the family in our church, who, a member of our church who passed away this week. I want to pray for them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have poured out on us a love that is so indescribable, in many ways just unthinkable, the way that you have loved us through Jesus. and We ask and pray that you would make us like John, that you would make us heralds, those who point to Jesus through our lives, through our words, through our actions, through our thoughts, and everything that we do. That you, King Jesus, would be ultimate. Father, I do pray for the family of Ben Jackson as Ben went to be with you this week at such a young age. We pray specifically for his wife Effie and their daughter, Melina, who's only ten years old. We we pray that you would comfort them as only you can. Would you give them strength And may they experience, particularly in this season, all that we've talked about here. May they know your peace and your joy and your hope and your love for them in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Our Luke passage tells us that these angels show up, at least this angel that speaks to the shepherds. And basically says this, says, hey, you know, don't be afraid, sure. I mean... Think about it, an angel just shows up. Hey, yeah, I feel good about you. Well, there's going to be a little anxiety there. So he says, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. And the reason is because there's joy to be announced. Fear and joy. You know, our whole life is consumed to some way or the other with fear, is it not? You know what fear really is? Uh, underlying all fear really is a, is a sense of, of wanting to control. It's to have our independence. It really is. Think about some of us that maybe are dealing with older parents and you come to that point where you have to say, okay, you can't have that car anymore. I'll assure you, unless they're very unique, they're going to fight and say no because that represents my independence. They want that, and understandably. It's that way about our identity. I have a little grandson, five years old. is over at our house just recently, and I, I started wrestling and playing with him. And, and, and so I started after him, and I say, I'm going to see what it takes to get him to say uncle. I couldn't get him to do it. I had him in tears. He was on the floor. And I mean, I felt really bad. Not enough to stop, but I felt bad. <laughs> and I said, surely he has a breaking point no break he wanted to control his identity as a tough kid we all want control you know the same is true spiritually we we want our independence and we can do it two ways we can do it irreligiously. religiously we can do it by saying okay I'm I'm gonna live the way I choose period God I don't care I'm gonna live the way I want to but you know some of us say no I'll do it religiously but the way some of us go about that even in the Christian faith is to say, "God, you know you owe me I've been good I've, I've really lived a good life you, you should take care of me now." You see this is what we want we want we want this thing that that gives us the independence that we we choose and to be able to control and because it means things like freedom and fulfillment and delight and identity. but you know here's what's so interesting and kids you need to know this that all of that, and there's a word in the Bible, it's called joy. And the, the word itself is, the, is really overarching this, the summation of those things we want so much, freedom and identity and so forth. It really is the way to that. And we say, well, that doesn't make sense because they seem just opposite. Here's the reason. And so kids, if you forget everything else that I'm going to say during this part, just remember this, there are two kinds of joy. That's why it's so hard to figure out. There's a natural joy. It's just a byproduct of good circumstances in life. Life's good. I got joy. Life's not good. I don't have joy. But there is a supernatural kind of joy. Totally, totally different. This is a byproduct of God's work within our lives. Now, we understand, we understand natural joy. We don't need to speak to that one. But this supernatural joy, type of joy that this angel is announcing he says great joy for all people meaning all kinds of people jews gentiles it doesn't matter it's for all people and it's based on this as he says a savior who is called christ the lord has been born for you in the city of david so just know this kids they're saying this supernatural kind of joy that we're talking about it comes about because of jesus the two are connected Take Jesus out of the formula. Oh yeah, you can have joy, but it's circumstantial just depending upon how things are going. So kids, just imagine with me for a minute that you have an opportunity to sit down with that angel and you speak to that angel and say, angel, explain this supernatural stuff, this thing called joy. I think maybe if he took the Bible at large and just summarized it, I bet you at least these four things would be included. Now, kids, you're not going to follow this. I'm going to put them on the screen because I want, I want some of the older people to get this one for sure. But four things I think we learn about this supernatural joy. Just so you know the difference between the two. Number one, though anyone can experience natural joy, only true followers of Jesus can experience supernatural joy because it's a fruit of what God works in our life. Called joy. Number two, though natural joy is dependent upon circumstances, supernatural joy is dependent upon eternal certainties. How about the fact that you're loved by God? Kids, I don't care how much the friends that you thought were friends don't love you and people let you down. Let me tell you, can you imagine walking through life and being absolutely convinced that you're loved by God? Oh, my. That you have eternity to be with him? You'll never experience separation from him? Let me tell you, that's what creates joy. Oh, well, how about number three? Though natural joy can coexist with suffering, supernatural joy finds great benefit in suffering. Oh, come on. Seriously? Yeah. I wish you could talk to some of the people in this church who are battling stage 4 cancer right now. The outlook is not good. I had lunch with one of them Friday, dear friend named Chuck. We're talking not about the message, not about joy, we're not talking but He makes a statement and I said, whoa, whoa, please, would you say that one more time and let me just put that in my phone. I want to make sure I keep this. Ask him for permission, can I even share this? This is what he said, there's nothing more joyous than being stripped of everything but Jesus. Cancer is not the best thing that ever happened to me, obviously, but the best thing that's ever happened to me was because I had cancer, I'm telling you. And that is repeated, somebody with stage four cancer came through, dear member of this church, came through to me and said, I'm telling you, it's true. I've never experienced joy like I'm experiencing right now. That's supernatural, folks. Or number four and last, though natural joy can coexist with disobedience, supernatural joy cannot. Well, disobedience is an expression of, of darkness and joy is an expression of light. So this Jesus, he comes along and he says, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So kids this Christmas man as you see the pictures of the angels next Christmas the same when you read the stories of this angel any other angel you remember joy and remember there's natural and there's supernatural. Now having finished the four homilies we want to wrap this up. I'm going to suggest that This hope and peace and joy, love, everything that we've been talking about, can you imagine? Kids, can you imagine going through life having an abundance of each of those? Well, Christmas is a great time to think about your bets. Maybe for some of us to reevaluate our bets. Maybe because our bets that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that faith is what it is, maybe it is I don't know what the bet's been, but whatever the bet is, maybe we're saying, I think I am not winning my bet because I thought I could independently of God create my peace and my joy and my love and my hope, and it's not working. Just reevaluate the bet. Place a new one. Or maybe for some of us, it's maybe we should just double down on the bet and say, you know what? Why not go for it? I mean all the way. Go for it. What is there more in life than to have these four great commodities promised, all connected to a relationship with Jesus? Man, I hope this Christmas is one where Christmas comes alive and you understand it like you never have. And you understand it because you understand about Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you now that you would grant us to be able to reevaluate our bets and maybe double down on some of our bets, whatever the case. God, let us be wise in how we make our bet about life. And kids particularly, God, would you grant these kids to somehow remember about these four things and remember they all go back to Jesus. Grant that, we pray. May this be the best Christmas we've ever known. And we ask it in the great name of Christ our Savior.